From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The White House is telling agencies to balance speed to distribute money for coronavirus relief with transparency and accountability. The acting director of the Office of Management and Budget, Russ Vogt, writes that, quote, time is of the essence to deliver the money. GovExec reports Vogt's memo includes 11 points for agencies to follow, including working with OMB staff before putting out funds. The Department of Defense will spend $133 million on its first Defense Production Act contracts for masks for health care workers and emergency responders. DOD says it will buy the masks in the next 90 days. FCW reports the buys will bring department inventory to about 39 million masks. More on this in a moment. The chief information officer at Immigration and Customs Enforcement's warning agency employees not to use the Zoom video conferencing service. ICIO Rochelle Henderson says the software has vulnerabilities that she writes put data, quote, in jeopardy of eavesdropping, possibly recording, and defacement. GCN reports ICE employees can use Zoom conferences. People outside the agency start if they don't share agency data and if they use a browser that doesn't require installation of the Zoom software. The masks the Defense Department will buy under the Defense Production Act will be in the department's inventory within 90 days. It's the first major purchase under the DPA since President Trump invoked it. Roger Zakheim's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library Foundation and Institute. Roger, welcome back. Good to see you again. What does the, what's the significance of the masks being the first thing under the Defense Production Act, or what is the significance that we're working under DPA at all at this point in your view? Well, I think using the DPA as we manage through the COVID-19 crisis is needed and in some people's minds long overdue. Uh, masks is certainly one of those key pieces of the response that was lagging. The Defense Production Act is a tool that's been around uh, since the Korean War. Actually, its predecessor began uh, used, you know, in World War II, and it's something that should be used in a public health crisis, and it's appropriate for the mask and then perhaps for other items as well. Last time you were on the program, you and I talked about some work that the Reagan Institute did looking at the defense industrial base. What's your sense of how this will impact the DIB overall? I'm sure masks are not the last thing that we'll see the Pentagon try to buy under the DPA. Yeah, that's correct. The national security innovation base uh, was what the Reagan Institute focused on our task force. And there we identified that dependency on China, whether it comes to artificial intelligence or ventilators or generic drugs was something that would be a strategic risk for the United States. And therefore, government really needed to wrap its arm around this problem and identified alternative pathways in order to make sure we are not vulnerable. In some respects, Francis, this is the most innocuous case where we see how our dependency and our vulnerability in supply chains coming from China uh, can really impact the security of this country. So the Defense Production Act is just one example of many things we need to address and update to recognize that in the 21st century, dependency on autocratic regimes like China makes us vulnerable. In a capitalistic society, though, Roger, what does that transformation look like? What does, what's the right level of government, 
subsidy, help, policy making, demands, whatever, what's the right level look like when you're when we're basically working against a system that when one person says we're going to do this, everybody kind of marches? Yeah, I mean, it, there's not one answer for one period of time. When we're in a crisis like we're experiencing right now, tools like the Defense Production Act uh, become reasonable uh, options, even for a free market system that we enjoy in this country. I think the, the tension point is how do we use and address these uh, tools and, and, and options um, when we are not in a crisis, but we are preparing for one. And that is something that previous administrations have thought about and, and dealt with. And the truth is, Francis, these tools were developed in the 20th century. They were not uh, architected for the 21st century, uh, dealing with the technology differences that we see uh, uh, and the competition that we see with, with China. And that's really where these tools need to be updated uh, when we come out of this crisis. And that's where I wanted to go next. What should we be thinking about? What should be we, we be watching now as this crisis unfolds so that we know what to do, what the moves are to make once this is over and we're moving on to the next normal? Well, one of the things I've been thinking about is whether we need a Defense Production Act for the 21st century. The Congress has been pretty good over the years reauthorizing the Defense Production Act, but we haven't really, and this is what our task force looked at, thought about how the tools of defense production uh, need to be applied when you think about the challenges we face with respect to artificial intelligence, data, machine learning, and the like. Um, you know, simply going ahead and prioritizing contracts like we have in Title I of the Defense Production Act, or even expanding or mandating uh, increased supply like you have in Article Three of the Defense Production Act may not be enough. The fact of the matter is the government and the arms of government really can't solve this alone. Most of the types of things that we will need uh, to be able to impact and control reside outside the arms of government, and therefore new tools or updated tools are required to make sure we are not vulnerable where we are relying on a competitor, an autocratic regime, for key elements of our safety and security. We have a little bit less than a minute left, Roger. The assumption has always been that the industrial base, defense, national security or not, would respond when the government said so. We saw the example of Google declining to continue with Project Maven inside the department. Is that something that some kind of update potentially to the Defense Production Act should address? I don't know if the Defense Production Act is the correct tool for that particular problem. Uh, legislation has dropped uh, in the Congress, uh, bipartisan legislation that came out of a recommendation of our task force uh, called the STEM Corps. Uh, Congressman Banks, who sat on our task force, uh, is one of the people uh, uh, sponsoring that legislation, which would work with the private sector uh, to make sure that we have adequate uh, software engineers and other uh, STEM workers impacting and supporting our national security innovation base. That's a type of public-private partnership we will need to see more of and the type of thing that we're working on here at the Reagan Institute. Uh, Roger Zakheim, thanks as always. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Stay safe and healthy. Up next, simplifying the path to digital transformation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, five steps to get your agency closer to the goal. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. Welcome back. The push to digital transformation is intensifying as more people work from home. Five steps will make the transformation easier for agencies and workers. Edward Torinsky is managing principal at DTS. He's writing about digital transformation in the Federal Times. Edward, thanks for coming on. I enjoyed this piece. I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. What did, why did you think it was important to lay these five steps out now, given where we are with people working from home? I think this incident, unfortunately, has highlighted a great deal of, of opportunities and faults in our, our delivery of federal uh, services to the American public. And I wanted to try to put five easy steps out there that leaders can take and move forward in digital transformation. This will help with the new workforce that's going to happen after we all get back to work. I want to talk about what happens after all of this at the end of our conversation, Edward, but start with number one, lead your organization. Sounds pretty straightforward. And you write about the assessment that leaders should undertake. And you write, this doesn't need to be a multi-month process. That makes me think that somebody who is realizing now that it's time to get started can still do it in the context of what we're dealing with the, with the pandemic. Am I reading that right? That's correct. Leaders need to take this moment in time to see how well they delivered their services to the American public and step forward and move the organization to digital transformation. It's, it's, they will be bluntly aware of their faults and their successes, and they need to take advantage of this situation so that when we have incidents like this in the future, such as snow days or hurricanes or other areas where we can't work in the office, we can adjust seamlessly. Second item on your list is start with fast fixes, and it strikes me that this is especially important in a time like now, correct? Correct. A lot of agencies have information systems, process and procedures that are in place right now that they can take advantage of. A number of agencies have taken advantage of their office product suite, such as Google, Microsoft 365. They also have IT systems where they have willfully negated the processes because that's how they want to operate, not because they can't operate that way. Take advantage of what is out there, what they already have, put those fast fixes in place, and the other thing is look at your policies and procedures. You're doing this because you've done it this way for a long time. Take a look at it and make those changes. Leaders have the ability to make those changes now and they need to do it instead of waiting for the next incident to happen. I want to take a quick sidebar there because it strikes me that as far as changing policies and procedures, now might be the ideal time in a circumstance like we're in now to say we just can't do it that way anymore despite the fact that that's how it's always been. You think that's a fair read? Uh, definitely. And they should take advantage and change those policies, but make sure you think through them. And just because you've done it this way doesn't mean you have to keep doing it this way. This is an opportunity for agencies to optimize their delivery to the American public, and they need to do it now. The third item on your list is embracing the hard part. And you point out that the hard part is often not the technology, it's the people. That's a concept we've talked about on this program pretty extensively. So because of time, I want to move to number four, and that's prioritize your operations. Focus on the mission is especially important right now. And it sounds like that's what you're getting at with this one, right, Edward? Exactly. We need to take care of the people that are at the tip of the spear, the people that are defending our nation, that are securing our nation, that are those mission critical positions from logistics to healthcare. We need to do what we can to help them. 
and then back off on prioritization to support them. It doesn't mean we ignore the operations of the back office or the process and procedures, but we need to make sure that we can deliver the health care, we need to deliver security, we also need to be able to, that we can deliver grants, we can write contracts, we can process payments, we can take care of people's um, administrative needs. Number five, I think, is the most important of all of these, Edward, and it ties into what we talked about earlier about what happens after COVID-19's threat has gone away and we go back to whatever the next normal is. Number five is never look back. And I wonder why you wanted to save that one for the last one, why that's important in a digital transformation effort or any kind of leadership effort for that matter. We need to move forward. The new normal and the new warper is going to be different. Looking back and saying, well, this is the way we've done it in the past and this was good enough is not the right answer going forward. We need to take what we've learned from this situation and make sure that we can optimize our operations to deliver to the American public. Once digital transformation moves forward and you're there, it's going to open up so many new opportunities in the future that we never thought of. The ability to look at your information, uh, artificial intelligence, robotic process engineering, there's so many opportunities that digital transformation is the basis. Um, and we can't also forget about cybersecurity. That's a huge part of this moving forward. So we need to think about how we're going to operate in the future. We need to move forward and we need to deliver the goods and services and what the American public is expecting from the federal government. Edward, less than 30 seconds left. What will be the common threads among those success stories that you're writing about in this piece, do you think? The common thread will, will be that they were able to meet the American public expectation through this. They were able to seamlessly transition from one area, from one work environment to another work environment. And there are many federal, many federal agencies that have done that already. And those folks are going to be applauded during this period for moving forward, thinking of new ideas, implementing new processes and procedures, finding new ways to do what we consider the same old thing. Edward, thanks very much for coming on. Congratulations on this piece in the Federal Times. Appreciate your insight. Thank you. Up next, managing defense contracts during the pandemic. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the changes you need to follow and the terms to make them work. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. New guidance on the stimulus package means defense contractors can keep paying their employees to stay in a ready state if they aren't able to report to work where they're supposed to. The Defense Department also has a new memo out with advice on managing defense contracts during coronavirus. Larry Allen is managing director at BDO USA. Larry, welcome back. It's nice to see you. What's your takeaway from all of this paperwork coming out about uh, contract employees and contract management during the pandemic? Francis, my number one takeaway is that the Department of Defense is trying to be flexible. They're trying to be helpful to contractors and issue guidance to ensure that DOD business gets done. Government is open for business. In fact, DOD has a lot of important missions it has to meet, Francis. Uh, National Guard deployment, national security, all the traditional things that uh, soldiers and airmen and sailors need to do. So it's good to have some flexibility and it's good to have this guidance out there.
Um, an appropriate shout out to all the branches. Don't forget the Marines, Larry, though, because they'll come and get you. Absolutely. Um, or the Coast Guard. Yeah, well, a fair point. Um, what, what's the main thing that you're seeing as far as the department's efforts to try to keep the supply chain open? Because just about every Defense Department person I've talked to has said that's really a huge priority is making sure that when they need to push the button, these companies are going to be able to feed into that chain whatever it is the department needs. Well, one of the things that you referenced in the introduction, Francis, is the CARES Act, uh, Section 3610 of the CARES Act, specifically that talks about maintaining contractor workforce in a ready state. And what does ready state mean? Well, it means that even if you can't go and work on a federal site, that site might be closed, uh, or you've got uh, even a child care obligation that prohibits you from reporting to an open work site, Section 3610 still allows you to uh, petition the government so that your workers continue to get paid. They don't get paid uh, any overtime or anything special, but they can still continue to be paid uh, when they're doing work, even if they can't show up. And in some cases, they can even get paid, even if they're not working, so long as they're in that ready status. So that's a good way to keep the contractor workforce on notice, on call, uh, because really, whether it's the Department of Defense or any other government agency, Francis, they rely on contractors to get any one of a number of missions done. That strikes me as maybe one of the residual effects, one of the residual lessons learned from the government shutdowns, Larry, is that uh, all of the agencies learned that some of these companies, especially when you got two or three levels down in the chain, were not able to keep, they couldn't afford to keep their employees on site and ready to go. And even when the agencies could come back, turn the lights back on, they took the companies longer to ramp up than it took the agencies to in some cases. Is that a fair read, do you think? I think that's a fair read. You, know, you don't want to lose critical talent, whether it's critical in-government talent or critical contractor talent that you need to meet your missions. So you know, this is an acknowledgement that even though we're very mission-centric, particularly in the Department of Defense, we are people and people have families and other obligations. So let's try to find a way to make this very unique situation work for everyone so that we maintain our readiness, we maintain our flexibility, uh, maintain the critical workforce that needs to uh, support DOD missions, even if we're working in a non-traditional atmosphere. Are there elements of this flexibility that you're seeing, Larry, of this guidance the department's putting out or any other agency's putting out that you think might stick around after the virus is gone and after we go to whatever the next normal is, the things that we've discovered, this doesn't work too bad. This, this is actually is at least as good or maybe a better solution or process or policy than we had before. Well, I think the most immediate one, Francis, is telework. You see that uh, the federal government, while it's had some issues with telework in terms of uh, system overload and things of that nature, generally speaking, telework has worked very well at the federal level as opposed to state and local governments, which may not have made the same technology investments as their federal counterparts have made in this type of technology. So. Getting uh, telework done, being a very efficient workforce, even though you're decentralized, I think that's definitely going to be a takeaway. We've seen some uh, 
guidance come out from the Office of Management and Budget, not specifically so much on telework, but on flexibility in the workforce. Uh, General Services Administration has come out with some guidance, a whole series of guidances, nothing particularly in one formal writing, but a whole series of answers to contractor questions, all designed to make sure that contractors understand how to get work done and how to get paid in this unique time. I think one of the biggest takeaways I have from all this, Francis, is that there's good guidance out there. There are questions being asked and answered. Contractors are gonna have to be the ones that are up and educated on all of these changes. Look, your government contracting officer is probably moving at a million miles an hour right now with all of the missions they have in front of them, whatever group it is they're trying to, to support, whether it's first responders, whether it's uh, critical agency staff uh, deployed overseas, whatever it is, uh, you can't be sure that your contracting officer has seen all of this guidance. So my word and recommendation to contractors is make sure that you have the guidance ready to show when you have that video chat or you have that email exchange with the contracting officer so they know what you're talking about and they can see the flexibilities that are there for them to take advantage of. Because ultimately, while there's a lot of guidance out there, Francis, it really is the contracting officer's call to decide how it is they're going to use it or whether they're going to use it. Larry Allen, stay healthy, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Francis, thank you very much. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. You can get Government Matters as a podcast every day now. You subscribe to our daily program on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.